Welcome to another exciting episode of Hashing Out the Law. I'm your host, R.S. Hashemi. On this episode, my guest is Dr. Wesley Britton. He's an espionage expert and has written several books on the matter, including one about how espionage is portrayed in movies and in films. I had him on so we could discuss the history and the law surrounding espionage in the United States and to talk about some of the other work he's done. Be sure to check out his work. All the links are included in the description of this podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Hashing Out the Law. This is season four. I'm your host, Arash Hashemi. On this episode, I have with me Wesley Britton. Wesley is an expert in espionage. And I had him on because I think it's an interesting topic and I wanted him to inform myself and the listeners and the viewers a little bit about espionage. Hi, Wesley. How are you? Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. I know you've uh, written several books, nonfiction books, and you've written some uh, sci-fi books about espionage. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, please? Well, okay, my background, there goes in the next 40 minutes because it'll take that long. <laughs> but, um, well, I'm a PhD, I'm a scholar. My first writing began when I was writing about Mark Twain and American literature while I was in grad school. And then as time went on, I began writing other things. I had a pretty good run as a poet there in the 90s. And then right about 2000, I decided I wanted to stop writing short stuff because I've been writing articles and essays and encyclopedia things. And I wanted to write a book. And I kept thinking, well, what book can I write that nobody else has done? And then it dawned on me. There are all of these books out there on specific spy TV shows, The Avengers, The Man from Uncle, The Prisoner, uh, Mission Impossible, I Spy. But nobody had ever written a book that covered the genre from beginning to end. Well, not to end, but from 1951 to, well, then it was 2003 when Spy Television came out. And man, that was a lot of fun. I already had half my research waiting for me in the bookshelves behind me in my office at the time in articles and magazines. And then I started, you know, researching more and more and more especially about the shows in the 50s, which I knew nothing about, and then all kinds of British shows that we never saw over here in the U.S. And it just kept growing and building, and I loved it. And that book came out, and that inspired me to do Beyond Bond for the same publisher that talks about espionage from the beginning of the century, the 20th century, up until, well, then it was 2005, and it looked at books and uh, movies and other things, mostly books and movies. And then I decided to do one just on movies. And that became on screen and undercover, the ultimate book of movie espionage. And then because that particular publisher prices their books for libraries. So they're crazy expensive. So I decided that I'd not do reduce by television but I would do the encyclopedia of TV spies because I could use a lot of the same stuff, go to a different publisher and have an affordable book out there that the general public could read. And that kind of took care of my 
first decade of the 21st century. So, so let me ask you a question. Uh, these books that you wrote about, I know they had to do with like James Bond and the history of, of television uh, espionage and things like that. Um, were they more concentrated on explaining the characters uh, that are on these shows or were they uh, explaining how espionage is in real life compared to these TV characters? Okay, well, the TV stuff, it was mostly about the production of the shows, how they came about, who the writers were, who the producers were. Um, almost every little stone. Now, in Beyond Bond and on screen, there is quite a lot in there about how actual espionage, or at least our attitudes about espionage, shaped what went up on the small screen, or on the large screen and in literature, because a lot of times people will ask me, you know, um, what I love for espionage, has it always been that way? No, it hasn't. In fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, if you look in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says spies. If a spy is found, he is hung immediately. That's the simple definition. Um, the first espionage act was in 1917, which, um, really had more to do with Americans not getting in the way of the war effort in any way. And here in the States, espionage just wasn't much of anything of great interest until the 50s when the Cold War got started. They had lots of movies, books and things, mostly British oriented up until James Bond. And that's when the floodgates opened and spycraft became, well, for me and for my whole generation, their generation since became a very central part of entertainment culture. And for some of us, the actual espionage um, is equally interesting and fascinating. And we can go through there and talk about all kinds of stuff with that. Right, let me ask you, you mentioned something, the Espionage Act of 1917. So that was when the world powers got together and actually put together a framework of espionage and what would we what would be well no the espionage act 19 wasn't the world powers that was strictly the u.s that was strictly it, the u.s okay that was and its primary focus uh was to deter americans from dis dissenting against the war blocking drafting doing anything that would interfere with um the services and that began the well the whole century fight between uh, espionage laws and the First Amendment, uh, including battles of more recent years between what's the difference between a um, whistleblower and a leaker? Right. So a lot of the go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I, I was going to say since this is a, a hashing out the law and this is sort yeah. of a legal podcast. Before we go back to your accomplishments, let's go a little bit into this. So you were gonna you you were gonna explain the difference between a whistleblower and uh, uh, a leaker. A leaker. Uh, after you yeah. explained that to us, could you tell us a little bit about how the espionage, espionage laws in the United States evolved from 1917 and forth? Yeah, yeah, somewhat. Um, but the difference between a whistleblower and a leaker is usually a whistleblower's motivations is to point out something wrong in what we are doing. Um, well, a good example of that is waterboarding. 
I forget the guy's name who came out and revealed that waterboarding was going on because he thought it wasn't a moral thing to be doing and that we need to stop it. Curiously enough, out of that whole waterboarding thing, he's the only one that went to jail for whistleblowing and anybody involved with actually doing waterboarding never went to prison. That's something unusual. Or as a leaker is somebody who wants to put information out there to the general public for, well, all kinds of reasons. You've got Julian, can you pronounce his name? Shad, I think it is. The one who's you know, currently in Russia hiding out because he can't come home unless he plans on going to jail. Um, or the Pentagon Papers. That was a big case back in the 70s where um, is it appropriate for someone to put out government secrets and have it put out in the press and um, and their purpose of, uh, I probably forgot his name off the top of my head, but um, was to let the American public know about the misdeeds of the United States government in perpetuating the war in Vietnam. So to put him more in the whistleblower camp, um, as opposed to a lot of them just leaking stuff to the media just to get it out there because they think uh, everything should be transparency, that there should be no secrecy. Right. So, so that goes into the courts and they judges have to really kind of listen to the motivations of the people involved. And the bottom line of it is what kind of damage did it do to the United States and their interest? Like in the case of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, when they, they're the only couple um, executed in the 20th century. Um, they were executed because, well, they went through all the hoops you could go through, and appeals and appeals and appeals up to the, the president, who said, right. I can't think of anybody who could probably is responsible going to be for, for more millions of people dying in the atomic age. Right, and they were they were executed because they passed on the the nuclear secrets to the Russians. Yes, essentially, that's how the Soviet Union got the atomic bomb because of Ethel and her husband. Um, now, having touched upon that, in modern day twenty first century, uh, if someone is charged with espionage, um, what act? would they be charged under? Meaning, is this Espionage Act of 1917, has, has it evolved into something else or do we have- It has evolved. I guess the biggest change to it came after 9-11 with the Patriot Act, which didn't really have so much to do with espionage or terrorism like they claimed, but more uh, the opportunity to surveil American citizens more closely. It really kind of depends on what kind of espionage is involved. Like if you think of China, a good chunk of what they're doing at espionage isn't so much for our weapons and our defense, but they're all they are. They're after that, but they want industrial trade secrets. So there could be all kinds of laws about conspiracy to fraud um, or um, well, stop now theft, corruption. There are a myriad kinds of laws that would apply to different situations. Uh, uh, use of cybercrime makes for a big difference because there's a lot of the Chinese stuff is, is definitely cyber crime where they're trying to crack into things and hack into things. Uh, so those laws kind of come into place. You can't really think too much about the old style um, Cold War kind of spying because that's largely passe. 
Um, but, you know, each of the um, federal agencies have got their own laws and things going in place. FBI, CIA, Defense um, um, Intelligence Agency. There's all of these different kinds of violations that can occur and someone sends someone to court. I see. There's not one simple answer to that. That's, you know, it's just a multi-layered circumstance. I, I have a question uh, and I'm gonna go back a little bit in time. In World War II, if you were an enemy soldier and you were caught behind enemy lines wearing the uniform of the enemy, meaning if you were like a, a German soldier and you were an American, American uniform, in an American uniform, and you were captured, you would then be shot as a spy. Summarily um, executed, yeah. Right. Um, but if you were a German soldier behind enemy lines in German uniform, you would be taken as a POW. Um, could you tell me what the reasoning for that was? Do you know what the reasoning for that was? Because that always fascinated me. Well, the reasoning would be is that the one was obviously trying to be a spy. If he's disguised in American uniform, he's trying to be deceptive and he's trying to likely try to gain information to take back with him. Um, I guess I, don't, I haven't really studied that particular issue. That that jumps out at me is the kind of the obvious reason. Right. Is going back to that definition I gave you, the spy from the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, if if you're going to be a spy in wartime, you're going to be shot. And that's, uh, well, that's wartime. And right. that's where you'll see a lot of the stuff about espionage and new laws and new um, procedures and all have to do with if it's in war or if it isn't. And the Cold War made for that kind of murky, but um, because by the time of the Cold War it became kind of common practice for spy exchanges, rather than executing spies or even necessarily imprisoning them all, but if they got one of ours, we got one of theirs, let's go meet at Berlin and have a walk across the bridge <laughs> and trade, you know. Right. There was a movie about that, actually. Tom Hanks, they, they made a movie about a true life event and Tom Hanks was in it. I don't remember. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, let's go back. Let's go back to your accomplishments. So you wrote these four books and then your last book, you changed publishers because you wanted the book to be a, a fair price for the general yeah. public. After that, what direction did you take? The surprise of just about everybody, especially me, I started writing science fiction. Kind of cake. Is your science fiction also espionage based? Well, not the first four books so much. Um, a time that went on, it got more espionage oriented. I'd say like the third earth has a lot of spycraft in it. Behind the alien lines is very much based on World War II espionage. And the idea for that really came. I started reading up a lot about female um, resistance fighters in World War II. And I read one book and then I read another book and I read another book. And as I went along, I kept finding all these little anecdotes and scenes and episodes and character descriptions and bits of tradecraft that they used. So I just took them all and put them on a different planet. <laughs> so it's uh, sci-fi, well, spy-fi, I guess you'd call it, because they're using, it's, it's all in, in war 
and they're going behind enemy lines to do all these different um, missions. And so that one. Then I got another thread started where it's 20 years in the future and some aliens from the family that were the stars of the first four books come to our planet and they're half alien. Their father's from our planet, but the mothers are all from Beta or Serapinhurst and we're not real happy to see them. So they get um, kind of a chase all across America and they take their minder with them who's special operative Mary Carpenter. I got so fascinated with her that I ended up writing all these prequel stories, Fates of Evil Men, which is in the short story collection, Alpha Tales 2044. And I got three other ones that are, two of them are done, they're in the pipeline. And the third one, I need to do some heavy revising. So that's one of my projects for 2022. And when I get that taken care of, then I will have the next book, and that will be definitely spy-fi. You mentioned short stories. Uh, I know you have a website. Are all these short stories available on your website? Uh, well, some of the, well, the, the three uh, Almond War stories I was telling you about with the French Resistance influence is in a collected book that's called Behind Alien Lines. So you can track that book down, and um, we kind of touting it last month. Um, and the other stories, there are a couple that my publicist has put up online. Um, well, but I'm not sure where. I spoke to your publicist and we, we got the links for, for all the listeners and viewers. We're going to include all the links to your books, to your short stories and to your website. So anybody who's listening and watching can, can easily access your work and, and enjoy it for themselves. Um, all the work that you've done, I know you were a poet. Uh, and you know you did your your books about espionage on TV and your your sci-fi. What is your favorite so far? What was the most you the one you enjoyed most doing? Be honest, my favorite project, you know, besides getting my PhD and doing all that stuff on Mark Twain and going to all the Mark Twain sites and being part of the international Mark Twain community was between 2007 and 2015, I was co-host myself of an online radio show called Dave White Presents, where I got to interview um, actors and producers and musicians and writers that uh, mostly, you know, were well-known during the baby boom, 60s and 70s, Ed Asner and Patty Duke and members of the Buckinghams and Jefferson Airplane, and all, all these kinds of people that had big impact on my life when I was young. Man, that was wonderful. And Creedence Clearwater Revival. I got to ask a lot of those guys questions that I'd had in my head for 40 years. That's pretty awesome. So you it was. To, you got to interview famous bands and famous people. That's pretty cool. Now, I know you, you mentioned your, your project. One of your projects for 2022 is finishing the prequel stories you had. What other projects do you have coming up um, that you can talk about that are not top secret? <laughs> well, I guess my memoir, which people have been bugging me to write for a long, long time. People keep telling me that I've lived this really interesting life. And to me, I don't really see it that way, but it's okay. Um, I started writing it and then I got some good feedback from people who like the 
first, I guess, 40 pages or so, whatever it is so far. And um, um, lost track as she's answering the phone over there. Oh, uh, the memoir, because, you know, I like having something to say anymore. That's kind of been a big change for me in the last couple of years. I noticed when I did return to Alpha, um, which was the last Beta Earth novel, and I was talking a little bit about it earlier, about but that's when the uh, Renburns come to Alpha Earth, our Earth. They end up going, well, that does a lot of spice stuff in it because I based Mary Renborn on Emma Peel and they get stuck in this prison for a long time that's based on the village from the prisoner. Um, but it had something to say and I was really delighted when reviewers pointed that out, that, you know, it's not just an action adventure story, that there's, um, you know, message to it. And it's uh, messages about our times, about inclusion and tolerance and acceptance and all kinds of different things. And I was just so delighted to read those reviews and hear those insights because I was trying to do that. I was trying to move beyond simple entertainment and um, the current alpha is the one, well, that and the blind alien, the one that started off all the um, beta earth books were like that. I had messages built into them. I wanted them to have something to say. So I'm trying to figure out as I write my memoir, what am I saying? Right. What's the message that's getting out there? And um, I keep having to revise it and rethink it. So you want your memoir not to be just the story of your life, you wanted to say something? And be entertaining, because I'm not exactly a famous person. Why does anybody want to read my memoir? Well, thankfully, there are webinars and things like that about how to do that. And I know enough to write it more as a novel, write it like fiction, to make it entertaining, to keep it moving, to leave out stuff that's probably not going to interest people and just stick to interesting episodes and for me the interesting stuff is all the interesting people i've known over the years right so a lot of time talking about characters that i have known and friends that i have had and um it's just part of it that i enjoy well it seems like you you led a a, a fun adventurous life <laughs> but i have one last question for you if you could live any other life would you want to be a spy or would you keep the life you have? I'd keep the life I have now. I don't want to be a spy. I did when I was in the fifth grade. <laughs> I've got a little book that my mother kept for my school days. Each year it's got little stuff we wrote down about what I was thinking that year. And in the fifth grade, I wrote down I wanted to be a secret agent. But then I read a pamphlet from the FBI about what they wanted in their agents. And their main suggestion was get a degree in accountancy. Oh, man. <laughs> that doesn't sound like any fun. I hate math. Accountancy? That's what they want as an FBI agent? Never mind. <laughs> I see. Well, it was a pleasure having you on. Um, I wish we had more time because I want to pick your brain more. However, we'll be back sometime. Yes, I will. Once you finish with your next book, let me know, and we'll we'll be happy to talk about that one. Uh, I'm like I, I said again for all the viewers and listeners, we're gonna have uh, all the links to to your work. Um, and uh, oh, one last thing, you actually were on a, a 
a documentary about Eli Cohen. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good story. Do I have time to tell it? Yeah, I know Eli Cohen's story, but the people who don't know about it, it, it I, I think they'll enjoy it. So please tell us about that. Back in 2006, I was going to the International Spy Museum to do my second presentation. I had done one attached to spy television. The second one was for Beyond Bond. And the adult education supervisor asked if I could suggest a movie that's historical that would be a good uh, fit for a program, you know, a historical movie, but talk about movies. And I said, yeah, The Impossible Spy, which was an HBO movie that was made in 1987. And I suggested that. And then I went down to do my presentation. And not only had they got The Impossible Spy, a story of Ellie Cohen, but the producer of the film and his wife were there. And we became fast friends and we still are. And I you know, did that presentation that evening. Uh, a little bit later, he got contacted by one of Ellie Cohen's younger brothers who's working on this memoir. And so he got a hold of me and we all ended up going out to Princeton to a friend's house, sat down with Maurice Cohen to um, write his memoir and his memories of Elliot, because uh, Maurice was in the Mossad as well in the code breaking department. Well, as it happens, Maurice, dies so as we start while you were while you were working on on his memoir yep and he left me with all of his files and some of which were useful a lot of which were gibberish a lot of them he was just cutting and pasting from online to you know write his background from because the family came from aleppo syria before they moved to egypt and so i went through it all and separated it out and did a lot of other research and then started communicating with the youngest Cohen brother, Abraham. Um, of course, knew an awful lot about uh, things in Egypt and Israel. And I ended up, I thought it was gonna be a book, but it wasn't long enough for a book, but it ended up as four really good articles. I'm really rather proud of them, to be honest. And you can read them at my spywisesecretdossier.com website in the uh, Spies and History and Literature files. There's all this stuff on Ali Cohen that's there. And every once in a while, I would get an invite from some movie producer. They were going to do something in Ali Cohen, and nothing ever came of it until Al Gazeera contacted me on this documentary, Agent 88, the Ali Cohen story. And they sent up these two interviewers from Washington, D.C., who rearranged the room that I'm sitting in to give the background that they wanted. And the producer was in Germany and tossing out things he wanted. And they interviewed me. And then the, in, the, in the end, the, the, our documentary is available. as a link to it at my YouTube channel, Wesley Britton's uh, YouTube channel. Um, and I'm the only English speaker in it. <laughs> Everybody else awesome. is speaking some Middle Eastern language. Well, the narrator of the English version is speaking English, but I'm the only talking head who's speaking English. So you got to be able to read your subtitles. I think of all the projects I've done, that's probably the one that got the biggest audience. Right. Yeah, the Eli Cohen story is is very fascinating, and a lot of people uh, uh, are entertained by it. That's awesome. Well, those articles, we're we're going to be sure to include those articles as well. Uh, people who are interested about Eli Cohen can read those articles. I'm sure they will enjoy them. Once again, I appreciate you being on. It was a it was a pleasure. I wish you the best, and I can't wait. Until you finish your memoir.
Well, thank you. I look forward to you sending me the link so I can share it with folks. Certainly will. You have a good day. You too. Thanks.